Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, we're continuing our studying in the book of Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Just a couple of notes about the believers in Philippi. That's the city of Philippi that we've talked about briefly, but just want to make a note of it. Because of the nature of the city of Philippi at the time in the first century, it was a powerful city. It was a favored city in the empire of Rome. In fact, because of its status in the empire of Rome, if you were born in Philippi, you were automatically a citizen. That wasn't true for every region of the empire of Rome, but if you were born in Philippi, you were born a citizen of Rome, and that was a big deal. There were a lot of benefits that came with being a citizen of the Roman Empire, and in Philippi, if you just happen to uh, be born there, you were automatically a citizen. Because of their favored status in the empire of Rome, Philippi did not want to lose their favored status, so Philippi was one of those places in the empire that really focused on uh, worshiping the Roman emperor. It was actually a, a form of religion. They would pray to the Roman emperor, they would have statues, they would uh, venerate, and they would acknowledge, and they wanted the Roman emperor to know that for them, he was uh, the cat's meow, he was the big deal. They had no need of any other kind of god because they had the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor at the time of the writing of the book of Philippians was a guy named Nero. I don't know if you've heard of Nero. Uh, he wasn't what you'd call a good guy. Uh, he was uh, really evil, uh, and, and then not only that, but he lost his mind a bit. Uh, so they worshipped the emperor. So to be a good citizen of the city of Philippi, you would be a good, upstanding Roman, and you would acknowledge Nero. You would have Nero is awesome on your T-shirt, and you would have a We Love Nero bumper sticker on your chariot. And uh, so this was a big deal in the uh, city of Philippi. So now the Christians living in the city of P Philippi then are caught in a bit of a tension. On the one hand, they're Romans, and they love being Romans. Roman, Rome has a lot of things to offer, and living in the city of Philippi has a lot of things to offer. And so there were some great things to enjoy about living in the city of Philippi. On the other hand, they weren't like that much into Nero. Like, thank you for the peace, and thank you that, you know, we've got a, a good economy and these sorts of things, but we're not sure that we're going to worship you. And so there was a tension, because you have in Philippi people who say, this is what it looks like to be a good Philippian. You, you're a good Roman, and you, and you love the emperor. And so the, the Philippian believers were saying, what does it look like to be a good Philippian who is also a Christian? How do I live in this kind of culture where 
there's some tension between what it means to be a good Roman in the city of Philippi and what it means to be a good Christian in the city of Philippi. How do we resolve uh, that tension? So the question we might ask ourselves is, how do Christians operate in a culture that doesn't honor Christ? How do Christians operate in a culture that either doesn't honor Christ or doesn't acknowledge Christ, or to acknowledge Christ creates a sense of tension between good citizenship and being a good Christian? And Paul is going to make it very clear by the power of the Holy Spirit that what it means to be a good citizen. Look at verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, some of your translations might have a little bit different translation for the word worthy. What's built into the meaning of this word worthy is citizenship. Only let your manner of life be a life of good citizenship. So what he's doing is he's connecting this idea of a good citizen to walking with Christ. But look what he puts the emphasis on. Be a good citizen of what? The gospel of Christ. So what we're going to be looking at as we work our way through these few verses in the book of Philippians is what it means to be people of heaven, citizens of heaven, citizens of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to live as citizens of heaven while being citizens of another place, for us it's the United States, or other places, I know there's some folks from other places here this morning. What does it mean to be a citizen where I live when I'm actually a citizen of heaven too? And for the people in Philippi, this was a great tension. Because to be a good citizen in Philippi, you worship Nero. Say, well, I, I love Philippi, but I don't want to worship Nero. How do I do that? People of heaven. First thing we're going to notice in the verse 27. People of heaven walk together what does it mean to be a good citizen of heaven in this culture people of heaven walk together look what he says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so let's just acknowledge something we read that phrase we read let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ i know what you're thinking be good that right that's what you're thinking okay what's the list of things i can't do what are the bad stuff what's the good stuff and what's the kind of in-between stuff where it's kind of up to me? What's the list? Pay attention. Does he make a list in this passage? There's no list. Look what he lists. It's one thing. Live as a good citizen of heaven so that when I come and see you, or if I'm absent, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to be a good citizen of heaven, even in a culture that opposes heaven? He says this, walk together. People of heaven walk together in unity. And you can imagine how this works. Maybe you're traveling someplace, either in the country far away or traveling someplace far away. Say you go overseas and you're touring uh, fantastic sites in Europe and you hear somebody talking and ordering a cup of coffee in English. And you walk over and say, well, where are you from? And they say, oh, we're from Portland. And you go, what are you talking about? How is it possible that I'm in, I'm in Europe and I run into somebody from Oregon? And then you start talking about things in Oregon. So you both paid $5,000 for plane tickets, hotels, and you end up talking to somebody from Oregon. Listen, you do that cheap here. They're everywhere. <laughs> you just walk around. You talk to Oregonians. 
But that's what we do. We, we, we go someplace, and we're in a foreign place, so then we see somebody, oh, wait, we have a connection, and aren't we immediately sort of gravitated towards them? Oh, these are my people. And what Paul is saying is that is how it should be in the body of Christ. We, though, are, are for, the foreign territory is the world that we live in, and our home is heaven, and we haven't been there yet. And what he's saying is, on this travel, on this journey, in this place that isn't really our home, walk together with the other people of heaven. Have unity of mind. Have a connection that comes from the good news of the gospel. We might say it this way. Our commonality with others around us is primarily Christ. Primarily the good news of the gospel. We walk together as Christians primarily because we say we need Jesus to forgive us. The people of God are called out by God to receive forgiveness by faith, and our identity is then those who have been forgiven by Christ through faith. That becomes our primary citizenship. First and foremost as Christians, the first things we are marked at is ones who are forgiven of our sins, and now together we come together as the people of Christ, a whole bunch of people together whose forgiveness came from Christ. That becomes our primary identity. Who are you? I am a in Christ person first, and then secondarily a husband, a parent, a wife, a child, a student, an employee or an employer. But what the Bible is challenging us to do is reorient our identity around our primary citizenship. What we tend to do is think of our primary citizenship as whatever this life is, and we'll get to heaven and handle that when we get there. So we'll get to heaven, and then my primary identity will be all about whatever heaven is, because what else am I going to do? And the, the Bible flips on, on its head. What it says is navigate through the course of this world as primarily one from heaven, as a foreigner, as an alien, as a, as a traveler. And the way that we do that is we make connection with others who are in Christ. May I hear, he says in verse 27, that you are standing firm in one spirit, having one mind striving for the gospel. Striving uh, for the gospel. What does it mean to be striving for the gospel together? It really means two things. Number one, we strive together to tell people around us they can have hope in the gospel. It's a striving to communicate to people who need hope that hope can be found in Christ. So we are striving in that together. We come together as a body of believers. We remind each other what the gospel is. Then we walk out of the room and tell other people what we are reminded of. We also come together and we pool resources and look for ways to use those resources to impact the world with the good news of the gospel. And so we strive in the gospel to communicate the hope of the gospel to our community. And we, we should do that. And we're glad that this church is doing that. But another way we strive in the gospel is to remind each other that we need and have the gospel. So we strive together in the gospel when one another get discouraged in sin. Anybody get discouraged in sin? Like, no, I love it. I'm discouraged at all. Yeah, you, know, you want to overcome sin, you're not sure what to do with it, you're not sure how to handle it. You strive for the gospel when in community you come together and remind one another. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, walk in the spirit and not by your flesh. So together we remind one another of what it means to rest in the gospel as well as live in accordance with the good news of the gospel by saying, saying no to sin. 
We strive in the gospel by reminding each other over and over and over again what Christ has done and how that should show up in our lives. So we do that in unity. We do that as citizens. We live as citizens where our primary identity is connected with who Christ is and the, the place he is preparing uh, for us. Here's the question we might ask in regard to uh, striving for the gospel. Does your spiritual life depend on anyone or does anyone depend on you? So when he calls us in unity in the gospel, he says, people of heaven walk together. The question I have to ask myself, is there anyone whose walk in the gospel depends on my walk in the gospel? And if I can't think of anybody whose walk in the gospel depends on my walk in the gospel, I have to ask the question, why not? Why isn't there someone where I am accountable to the Lord and to them to encourage them in their walk in the gospel? Because the walk together in, uh, as people of heaven is a walk where we walk together. So this isn't a bunch of lone rangers walking the same direction. This is a, a group of people where some are carrying others and some are helping others and some are encouraging others. Does my spiritual life feed into others in such a way that they need the gospel for me? And the reverse is true too. Is there anyone in my life where I depend on them to help me in my walk in the gospel? And if there isn't, why isn't there? Why is my life lived in such a, a, a bit of isolation that I'm not allowing others to speak into my Christian life? When the Bible says here, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's calling us to citizenship together of heaven. And I say that because a lot of us read that verse and we primarily think, well, it means to live a good life. It really means to live a unified life where our primary connection is with others because Christ saves sinners like us. So people of heaven walk together. All right, look at verse 28. It's kind of right in the middle of the sentence. He says this, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Walk as good, good citizens of heaven and don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. So people of heaven walk together, but there's something else we have to acknowledge here. People of heaven will face opposition. People of heaven walk together, but something we have to be clear on is the people of heaven will face opposition. If you've ever been on the river, you realize the river has a current to it. Did you know that? It's flowing a single direction. So Somebody might fall out of a raft, and they're in the middle of the river, and they're flowing down the current, and which can be fun, but maybe they're coming up on a waterfall, and they need to get to the shore. And there's a, a device that rescuers use. It's a, it's a, I don't know what you call it, but it's a throw bag, but it's got a rope in it, and you, you hold on to one end of the rope, and you throw the bag, which has rope coiled into it. You throw the bag, and the rope goes out in the river. You throw it in front of where the person is, is flowing down the river, and the idea is they grab onto that rope, Okay? couple of tips on the throw bag. Hold on to one end of the rope. If you throw the whole thing, that's not helpful. Secondly, throw it in front of the person. Don't throw it behind them. They cannot swim. If they could swim upriver, they wouldn't have a problem. So you throw the throw bag out. So what you'll realize as the person being rescued, when you're flowing down the river, you don't feel the current. You see the trees going by. You see a waterfall approaching, but you don't feel that current, do you? Because you're, you're moving at the same speed of the current. What happens when you grab that rope? As soon as you grab that rope, all of a sudden water piles up behind your neck. 
and all of a sudden you feel all the tension of the current trying to pull you one way, but your rescue is taking you another way. And until you're on shore, you're going to feel the force of that current the entire way. But for some reason in the Christian life, we're convinced that the rope gets thrown to us and we just float down the river till we get to heaven. But the rope lands in front of us, we grab it, and the Bible is quite clear that our suffering is a sign of our impending victory. The fact that I feel the current when holding the rope is a clear sign I'm going the correct direction. And people of heaven will face opposition because the current of the world that's opposed to Christ is opposed to Christ. So to walk as a person of heaven means we will, in fact, face opposition. And the call to a Christian is not to avoid opposition. The call to the Christian is boldness. What does he say? Don't be frightened. It's a command. As people of heaven, walking together, don't be frightened. You have nothing to be frightened of. In fact, understand the opposition and suffering you are facing is in fact a sign that one day you will experience victory. It is in fact one of the most clear signs that you will once they face victory is because of the opposition we face here. We have to understand as people of heaven, we have to have an expectation. Our honor and our glory does not happen here. Let me explain that again. Our honor and our glory is for another time, it's for another place, it's with Jesus, and it's in eternity. It is not here. How much honor and glory are we to expect here? Zero. Zilch. Nada. None. What is our expectation here? We will flow against the current. So does this mean my life as a Christian will always be awful? Maybe, I don't know, but not necessarily. But what we must understand, we tend to have this in our brains. If I love Jesus and I follow Jesus, everything will be awesome. It will be after you're dead. I don't know how to say that nice. But will we experience blessing here? Yes, see, that's the tension the people of Philippi were understanding. Like, okay, we're facing opposition, but it's also kind of nice here. It turns out the United States is really nice. We have central heating and air conditioning. I cannot tell you how much I love turning the furnace on and not building a fire. It's amazing. The house doesn't smell like smoke. When it gets just a little too cold, I don't put on a sweater. Turn up the thermostat. And you say, well, that's wasteful. I'm an American. <laughs> what a, that's what I've been taught to do since I was a kid. Turn it up. And then it gets too hot. I say, oh, it's hot in here. Turn the air conditioner on. I do that all day long. My heating bill is like $4,000, but I don't care. So we, we, we enjoy this place. We enjoy the fact that we get to experience freedom of speech, and we get to experience the joys of worshiping without worrying about persecution. But there's also a whole bunch of tension we face, too. There's also tension. To say, well, this is a great place, but there's also some things about our culture and our land that kind of make us feel a little bit worried. So how are we supposed to feel worried? Or how are we supposed to feel? Not frightened. He says, 
don't be frightened by your opponents. When things are going on in the world and you realize, wait, we're not winning. That is a sure sign we are going against the current and victory is certain. We are not going to experience our honor here. We are not going to experience glory here. Once you know the glory and honor you will receive in heaven in Christ, you wouldn't want it here. But until that day, we must recognize the job is to boldly swim against the current, that is, walk together in Christ. So the expectation is not glory and honor. The expectation is to walk in faith, side by side, in the good news of the gospel. I must make clear here what this passage is not saying. When we're swimming against the current, he is not primarily talking about Christian morals. So think about it. He doesn't say, don't be frightened by your opponents. Someday they'll understand that you know the right way to live and they're all dirty. That's not what he's saying. He's primarily wanting them to understand that we need to stand in opposition to anyone who would offer salvation other than Christ. See, in Philippi, where did you get salvation? From Nero. You needed money, you prayed to Nero. If you needed security, you trusted Nero. If you wanted political stability, you trusted Nero. And the Christians come in and say something scandalous. We get all that from Jesus. So the scandal of the gospel is not that it tells the world they're living badly. The scandal of the gospel is it says Jesus is the only way to escape. Striving side by side in the gospel is a recognition Jesus is our Savior, not merely that Christians live better. Our issue is are we going to stand up for the gospel? To find Christ, we have to be willing to, to tell the world and those around us they need hope in Christ alone. I don't know how to say this, without, again, without being rude. I don't know how to not be rude, period, so I guess I'm going to stop trying. <clears throat> As Christians, it seems like we spend a lot of time trying to get the world to act like Christians. We have got to finally figure out who are we supposed to vote for, who are we supposed to approve of, who are we, what are we supposed to do to finally get the world to realize they need to live like Christians? Yeah, let me just say it this way. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to the world? They start living like Christians. Why is that? Because then they won't need Jesus, and without Jesus, they go to hell. The world doesn't need to live like Christians. What does the world need? Jesus. The offense Christian offers to the culture is not that we think some things are right and some things are wrong. The offense of the gospel is Jesus is the only way to God. So if we're going to offend the world, let's offend the world by standing up and saying Christ is the only way, not by being morons. We tend to be offensive instead of letting Jesus be offensive. The reason the Christians faced opposition in Philippi is not because they were living differently than the culture. The reason they were facing opposition in Philippi is they said, Jesus is better than Nero. And I don't know who you think is going to fix the world's problems, but if that person's name isn't Jesus, you're no different than every other American in the country. 
The reason Christians should offend our culture is we say the only fix is a guy named Jesus, and he's not asking permission to rule. He's just simply in charge. People of heaven will face opposition. I would suggest Christians today are facing opposition, but not because of the gospel. We're facing opposition because we're opposing lots of different things. The Christians in Philippi were different. They were proclaiming Christ as the true king and were willing to die for it. So people of heaven will face opposition. The issue is, where does our allegiance lie? Is our allegiance, is our primary allegiance in Christ alone? Let me just draw it out this way for the people of Philippi. The issue was, these people were following Christ so closely that the people of Philippi did not think they were very patriotic. Their walk with Christ was so close that the people of Philippi thought they were bad citizens because they were so devoted to heaven, they didn't seem devoted to Philippi. And that's what it means for people of heaven to face opposition. We face opposition because we are so devoted to the kingdom we actually belong to, the kingdom we're living in says, I don't even think you're in to this. The issue is where does our allegiance lie? So our job is to not be frightened. Our job is to be bold, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. When you're watching the news as a Christian, do you experience fear? You've been commanded by the Bible not to. Of course, it's really hard to command somebody not to be afraid. But the command here is the Bible is telling us we need to reorient our perspective. Maybe a good question to ask yourself when you're watching the news or reading the news online and you experience fear as a Christian, the question you need to ask is, why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? You've got to figure that out. Why am I afraid when I see things in the culture going different than I think the Bible might communicate? Why am I afraid of that? There's two reasons you might be afraid. Number one, you're afraid because you want it your way and it bothers you when things don't go your way. Anybody else want everything to go their way? Yep. If you went to the restaurant and every time you showed up they gave you somebody else's order, would that bother you? Yes. Well, as a Christian in this culture, that may be how you're feeling. Nothing's going the way I think it ought to go. And that makes me worried and a little bit annoyed that the world hasn't finally recognized the brilliance of my political views. Okay? So that's not a valid fear. That's not a valid fear. What's another fear that we might have? We might be afraid that Christ isn't going to win. Well, if this keeps going this way, what's going to happen to the cause of Christ in the place that we call our temporary home? What's going to happen to the cause of Christ if this keeps going this way? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? God, are you with us? Look what it says. Verse 28, second sentence, when things are going sideways on us, this is a clear sign to them, those who have rejected Christ, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Maybe I could say it this way. This might be stretching the point, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. I want to have assurance that I'm a Christian. Good. When you watch the culture go sideways, that's assurance you're headed the right way. Well, no, 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 no. What I want is the culture to know, go my way. Right, it's never going to. The culture is going to finally be a Christian culture when Christ returns on a giant white horse. 
That's when it's going to happen. Until that day, we're holding on to the rope of our salvation against the current. Get used to it. Praise God, it means you're headed the right direction because that current's going a bad way, okay? People of heaven walk together. People of heaven will face opposition. Last one, verse 29 and 30. Let's read it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. People of heaven walk together. People of heaven will face opposition. And finally, the people of heaven will receive the grace of suffering. Will receive the grace of suffering. Not the punishment of suffering. What does he say? It has been granted to you. Okay, so this is, you're unwrapping the gift on Christmas morning, and you're so excited, and you open up, and open up, hey, it's suffering? Uh, you and I have different views on what's awesome. But that's exactly how it's to be. He's giving us the grace of suffering. Think about it this way. When the Oscars are played, yeah, have you seen this award show? Um, a bunch of wealthy actors and actresses vote to give each other awards. Um, it's kind of interesting how that works. Um, so what companies will do is they will prepare gift bags for the actors and actresses because it is unbelievable that they're able to get together in a room and uh, give each other rewards. Um, so they should also receive a gift bag. So this gift bag will have sample products of different companies. The estimate last year of the gift bag that uh, presenters received uh, for being in uh, the show, uh, the value of that bag was about $100,000. That's a lot of money uh, for most people. Uh, so why do these companies give a massive amount of money to these uh, celebrities? And the fact is they want their products somehow connected with this celebrity in anticipation that that promotion might generate uh, greater sales, which of course it does, because you and I see the celebrity wearing our favorite perfume. I don't know how that works. You hear what I said, see them wearing perfume? Anyway, um, and we're oh, I, I have to own that because if I buy that perfume, I'll be uh, just like that celebrity, which it works every time. Um, we do it nonetheless. They would stop doing that if you and I would stop buying the stuff when we see it on celebrities. Um, so why do they do that? The association. So the point here, why would we want to suffer? The association. That's exactly what we're saying. It has been granted to you that you get to be a part of the work of the greatest thing ever. That is Christ, the name that is above every name, the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, the savior of the universe. We get to have a participation with him, and we get to join with him in his work. So it has been granted to you to join with Christ in the greatest work that has ever been done, and the way in which we do that is suffering. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. Yes, it's fantastic. By faith, we get to receive salvation, but it gets better. Wait, there's more. You also get to suffer. This is the worst infomercial ever. But that's exactly what it's saying. Now, the problem is in our heads, because of our culture, frankly, we assume that when everything is being done right for God, we will therefore not suffer. That is not how it works. 
The joy of being in Christ is we get to participate with Christ in his glory. That's coming, not home yet. Until that day, we get to participate with Christ in his suffering. We get to join him in the difficulty that is living the good news of the gospel in a world that says we don't need it. The greatness of Christ is his suffering, and so to participate with Christ in his greatness means we participate in his suffering. How do I know everything's going right in my Christian life? It sucks a little. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but that's what he's saying. How do I know I'm really hitting a home run? Because I've found this sweet spot of difficulty. I've found this sweet spot of walking with Christ in his suffering. Now, see, I can already tell you don't like it. I can already tell. You, you say, well, no, the way it's supposed to be. Yes, of course, there's a little suffering. There's a little difficulty. But for the most part, hashtag blessed, baby. No. You haven't read your New Testament. Jesus was quite clear. If you are going to follow me, think about it. Wait, what, if, what if we said that? What if we had an invitation, a bunch of people came forward to receive Christ? We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You clearly haven't thought this through. Oh, what would you, you guys would be mad, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd be typing emails on your phone. They came forward. He said, no, 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 think about it. Count the cost. You're going to carry your cross and follow me, he says. So before you follow me, maybe you should calculate the cost of it the way a builder would calculate building a building and make sure you are in for what this looks like. And he's saying this. He's saying to, to walk with Christ between here and home is a walk of difficulty. There's going to be times of good times. There's going to be times of joy. There's going to be times of blessing, of course. And we're not turning those down. But we have to understand when it gets sideways and life is a pain, it's not because something has gone wrong. It is likely we get to participate with Christ in his suffering. The assumption is that being like Jesus is the greatest honor there is on planet Earth. It's the greatest honor in the universe. And to uh, be like Christ means we're like him in his suffering. We walk the same walk as Christ. Now, next week in chapter 2, so you can read ahead, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we're going to walk through that humiliation of Christ, what it looked like for Christ to be humbled and serve us through death, even on the cross, and to finally be glorified. But the fact is what he's telling us in this passage is when we look at Christ, we aren't just looking at his life like one day we get to go to heaven. We say, what does it look like to live with Jesus today? And it may mean... In all likelihood, we will face difficulty. It has been granted to us that we, can, we will believe because God is gracious, and he has been granted to us to walk in Christ's footsteps and experience uh, difficulty. Last thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Look at verse 30. Um, it's been granted to you that you would suffer for his sake and that you would be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now and here that I still have. So the, the point he's doing, he's circling back to the beginning. We said people of heaven walk together 
people of heaven face opposition and the people of heaven receive the grace of suffering. But the idea here is we receive the grace of suffering together. So the, the suffering is intended to bring more union, not more isolation. And, and why do I mention that? Because again, as individuals, we still want to put our best foot forward. So think it through, and you may disagree with me uh, if you want. And that's fine if you want to disagree with me. I mean, I'll be offended, but that's, I'll get over it. Um, so in your mind, you're thinking, if I'm a good Christian, things are going to go my way. So when things don't go my way, business deal goes south, relationship blows up, lose a job, tire gets a screw in it, whatever it might be. Okay, then you start going through, okay, sin, uh, what have I done? Because God's obviously spanking me. So this is, if, now I feel bad. Do you not think this way? Is it just me? Okay, it's you too. Okay, so something bad happened, so therefore God's getting back at me. I got to go through all the list of things. I, I confessed and confess him again. Then, then we get down to the B-level stuff. Well, I didn't think it was wrong, but I guess maybe my attitude was a bit off. So now I'm confessing attitude. And now I'm trying to think through things I was thinking about doing but ended up not doing. Okay, I got to confess those because I shouldn't have been even. So I'm just working through it. Okay, I got to get through this because otherwise God's going to just keep this hard stuff going. So this is the culture that we have all grown up in. And then you want me to come down and tell people my life is crummy, that I'm suffering? What are you admitting to the other people in the room who are Christian? Well, there must be something wrong with my life because it's going badly. And so what tends to happen is when we go through suffering, our default movement is isolation. We tend to, when we're going through difficulty, hide and we're like, you know what, I'll re-engage when everything's sort of evened out. I don't want to bother people with my issues. Not only that, I don't want them to be judging me. I don't need them all up in my, in my face with their judging McJudge pants on. Okay, so I'm going to just, I'm going to isolate. And, and Paul is saying here, no, 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 suffering is intended to bring greater unity. See, when the gospel comes in, you come in and you say, oh, man, uh, this huge uh, medical bill came in, and I realized that... Um, uh, that I had really sinned this weekend. I drank too much, and now I can see what God is doing. He's reminded me I'm not drinking anymore, and, and so therefore, he's reminded me through that. And what are you, what's, your what's your reply to that? Dude, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You don't get to pay for your sin. Nice try. Gospel is quite clear. Jesus paid for your sin. I don't know what the medical bill is for, but it's not because of your sin, unless Jesus missed one on the cross. Is that what you're saying? That like you got most... It, it is mostly finished, except for this one sin that you happen to figure out? No. See, that's what we do with the gospel. If somebody comes in with their suffering, and they're saying, I must be a bad person because I'm suffering, we come at them with the gospel. Yes, you're a bad person, but you're forgiven, and that has nothing to do with the suffering. And that's how we do it. That's called a relational community. If you want to read a long story of that, about that, read Job. A guy who was suffering, not because of his sin, but just because God wanted to. You can talk to God about that, but that's just it. And his friends were wrong. So we, in our suffering, need to come together, not isolate. But you don't want to tell people about your bad marriage because that makes you look bad. Don't, here, let's just give each other permission. The gospel says you're bad. We know. I don't even need to know the details of your life. The gospel tells me your life isn't that great. So why don't you just come and make some friends and tell them what is really going on so we can apply the gospel to it together. The people of heaven walk together. The people of heaven will face opposition. 
And the people of heaven receive the grace of suffering. And in our suffering, we need to come together, not isolate. All right, just a couple of application questions, maybe to get you thinking, and then uh, we'll close with a song with Adam. One of the primary ways that we can encourage other sufferers is to share in their suffering. We cannot isolate. We need to be able to sit with people who are suffering and not offer fixes. We need to be willing to engage with people in prayer, talk with people on the phone, not force on them an assumption that everything's going to get okay. Maybe one of the, you can think about how you talk with people who are going through a hard time. And, and think about how do we ask questions that don't assume, I want to make sure that it's finally resolved. Because suffering in the Bible says, I want to assume that Christ can make you strong if it never gets resolved. And I'm going to be with you even if you're complicated till the end of time. Even if you're a high-maintenance friend till the end of time because of the complications of your life. One of the primary ways we encourage sufferers is to be with them in their suffering. When you know someone's going through a hard time, how quick can you get on the phone with them? How quickly can we put out the, all the excuses you and I do? Oh, okay, they're in the hospital. Oh, they're sick. Oh, their marriage is falling apart. Oh, they've got friends that are closer than me. All those other friends that are closer than you said, oh, no, they're closer than them. And then nobody called. So jump in. The default position when other people are going through a hard time is to isolate. In the gospel, we jump into suffering with them, even though it might be awkward and weird and you're going to say the wrong thing, but jump in and come together. One of the primaries we encourage other sufferers is to suffer with them and to share with them our suffering. Secondly, second thing. Again, you're not going to like this, so you can throw it out. You get to pick one of these you don't like. Um, the pursuit or the achievement of comfort will never comfort or encourage sufferers. The pursuit or achievement of comfort doesn't encourage sufferers. Now, God may have blessed you in particular ways, so leave that one at home when talking to a sufferer. Don't come at a sufferer, someone in difficulty, the way Job's friends did. Say, you know what? I was going through the exact same thing you are. Wrong. And I finally started doing my devotions every day, and it all worked out. Anybody ever had that one? Anybody ever said it? I've said it. You know, I'll, I'll claim it. That doesn't help a sufferer. Okay, so now not only is my life kind of crummy, I'm now not as good of a, a Christian as you. So the primary way we uh, comfort sufferers is to be with them and remind them Jesus is with them and encourage one another. When we're going through difficulty, we are participating with Christ in difficulty. And there's a great honor and joy in that. Okay, you're not going to like this one. I don't think you're going to like any of these. Now look at them. We tend to evaluate the quality of our life, especially the quality of our Christian life. So if things are going well for me, it means me and God are on the same page. I might suggest it's the opposite. And that, now, you're, now you're mad, I can tell. You're like, no, no, no. I saw the guy on TV. He said, if I give money and I read his book and plant a seed, is that what they say? Plant a seed, uh, I'm going to get money and I'm going to get help. 
I might suggest, on balance, when reading the scripture, how do you know when things are going right when I am participating with the suffering of Christ? Now, I'm not saying all blessing is bad. I am just merely suggesting our barometer of what ought to be is backwards. And we should not so quickly say, because everything is going swimmingly, obviously God and I are on good terms. It may be the opposite. It may be you're flowing in the currents a little too easily. And it's time to grab a little tighter to that rope and feel some opposition. It may be that the people in life, you say, boy, I wish they could get their act together because they're just living a nightmare. It may be they're onto something. It may be they found the sweet spot of what it looks like to walk with Christ in difficulty. I'm just throwing that out there for, for consideration. Um, I know you don't like it, but that's my job. Uh, finally, look at this in verse 28. This, that is opposition, is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your vindication and that from God. So one last thing by way of encouragement. At the end of the Bible, there's a verse that says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay? So here's what we get to do. This is why church is fun. The world will finally do what we've been doing the whole time. So opposition is a clear indication that one day we will be vindicated. Let me put it this way. There is only one chance to walk with Christ the way we get to now, which is in opposition. Once he comes back or once we go home, it's going to be awesome. But we will never again have the opportunity to sing praise to God when no one else is. Right now, we're the kooky ones. We showed up early on a Sunday morning when everybody else is sleeping off whatever Saturday night looked like. And we got up and we sang some songs, which I don't think they played any of these on the radio this week. Did they? We, we get together, we do weird things. We read from a book that in some places is 4,000 years old. We talk about a guy who rose from the dead like he's coming again. And the world says we're crazy. It would be crazy if it wasn't true. There will be a day when everybody will acknowledge what we've been doing all along, and we get a shot to do it right now. That's pretty amazing. And Christ is glorified in it.